you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, today we begin a new message series on the miracles of Jesus. And uh, what a wonderful topic. Uh, we, were, uh, we were blessed in our uh, Bible study hour because we have a living example of a miracle sitting right over here. Uh, Brother Steve, wave your hand. Give, give, give the Lord some praise. He was supposed to have open heart surgery on Friday. It had been scheduled before and then it was going to happen on Friday. I was on my w way up to, uh, to pray with them on Thursday and he was already, they had called him and said, you know what, we don't think we need to do open heart surgery. We might be able to do this a uh, little less invasive. When they say less invasive when it comes to heart surgery, Donna's like, I wish they would have said less invasive to me, right? And so you, you have to give God the praise and the honor for what he did. And so, Steve, I'm so happy for you, and uh, we want to continue to keep him in prayer. Amen. We want to keep him in prayer as, uh, as the Lord continues to work all this out. He will be having a procedure right now scheduled for April the 8th, and so uh, we just trust that the Lord is going to bless Today we begin with the miracles of Jesus. So look with me in John chapter 2 and I want to read this passage to you as we get started. Beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. As I said today, we begin this series of messages on the miracles of Jesus and, and as we studied, listen, over the next several weeks we're only going to be able to study a handful of Jesus' miracles but what I want you to know and what I want you to be aware of is that in these miracles, they, they reveal more to you and I than just what Jesus did then and there. They actually, through these miracles, you and I will be able to see not only what Jesus did then, but we will actually be able to discern from God's Word what Jesus wants to do today and tomorrow in our lives through these miracles. In our text this morning, we actually see and have just read how water actually recognizes and responds not only to the voice of Jesus, but to his will when he orchestrates this miracle. Listen, they're literally responding to the very one who created the heavens and the earth. Look with me. In fact, Merriam-Webster, in their dictionary, they define a miracle as this. 
Guys, if we could put up the definition of miracle. They state that a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Steve, would you agree with that definition this morning? Extraordinary event manifesting. The word manifesting actually means that it reveals something. Something becomes known. It manifests divine intervention in human affairs. And so, in other words, what we see is that miracles actually become a violation of natural law. See, what we think is right and and how we might uh, understand something or if something makes sense to us, we would try to explain it away. But sometimes you just can't explain it. Anybody ever had a miracle in their life? When a loved one trusts Christ, that's a miracle. When a loved one makes a, a, a better life choice, right? And they make a choice that actually honors and glorifies God. That's a miracle in and of itself because left to ourselves, we wouldn't make the choice that honors God. And so the very onset when we think about miracles, it's something extraordinary that manifests a divine intervention into human affairs. In his book, The Grave Robber, pastor and author Mark Batterson says it this way. When he said this, he said, sometimes God shows up sometimes God just shows off. Sometimes he shows up in our life and we're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then sometimes he just like shows off. And I think what we see here is a little bit of God showing off here in John chapter 2. Truth be told, you and I experience miracles every day. We really do. Do this for yourself. Put your hand in front of your mouth real quickly. Now breathe. Was it hot? This room's filled with a lot of hot air, right? We experienced the miracle of breathing. Uh, do me a favor real quick. This is class participation time. If you're able, stand up with me. Sit back down. This is kind of fun. Stand up, sit back down, stand up, sit back down, right? Next thing you know, we'll be doing the wave. Standing is a miracle. Sitting is a miracle. Hey, have you ever considered or given God the glory for this? Watch what I'm getting ready to do. That we can walk, that we can talk, that we can see, that we can hear, that we have a circulatory system that pumps our blood nonstop, that we have the ability to fight disease and and fight off colds and sicknesses, that our body has an immune system that works in the way in which it does. Those are all miracles. Today, you will actually go away from this edifice and you will start to feed your face and your body will respond by digesting food. That's a miracle. I like what David said. David said in Psalm 139, in verse 13 and 14, (laughs) David, a man after God's own heart, he says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he goes on, he says, Marvelous are thy works. I believe David's talking about the miracles of God. He says, Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Folks, David knew that his design and that his life was a miracle of God. Oh, may God help us to remember that our life And our design is a miracle of God as well. 
truly only God can perform miracles. And accordingly, Jesus uses this text in John chapter 2 to kind of pull back the curtain, so to speak, to, to tear away the darkness so that we can see and show us exactly why he has come into this world. And certainly if we're, you say, is it really all that in just turning the water into the wine? Yes, it is. We can look all through scripture and you say, well, I know why Jesus came. I mean, 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And someone else might say, well, I know why he came, because he told Zacchaeus that the Son of Man was come to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 6, he said, I am come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. And as I mentioned last week, we can look at John 3.16 and 1 John 4.10 and we can look at other passages like Romans 5.8 and understand from Scripture that all of these verses and more, Jesus is the demonstration of God's love to us. Oh yes, miracles abound everywhere. God's Word is chalked full of Scripture that indicates with words, pay attention to this, with words why Jesus came. But here in John chapter 2, Jesus uses a miracle, or as some have suggested, the first sign, not only to speak about why he came, but to display why he came. And so let's take a look. We're going to walk through the passage. Look at verse number 1 and 2. And the Bible says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And notice right away, the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. First of all, Jesus' mother being there indicates that this wedding celebration was most likely for a relative or a really close uh, friend of the family. Which actually also makes sense if you read in John chapter 1 and earlier, uh, earlier how Jesus was over in, uh, uh, over in another part of this territory uh, when John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Right? We know that Jesus is traveling. He's on the move. He's got uh, five new followers that are following him. He's got Andrew and, P uh, Andrew and Peter and John and Philip and Nathaniel. And so we see a lot of things taking place. And so he comes here to this wedding and it says on the third day. What does that mean? Some have suggested that it means the third day of a wedding feast, which could have lasted up to a week. I would suggest that we just follow scripture because the days are actually revealed here. It says in verse number 29 of chapter 1, The next day John seeth Jesus coming, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 35 of chapter 1, Again, the next day, after John stood, and two of his disciples looking upon Jesus. Verse 43, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow him. And then we know Nathanael follows suit. And then, the next thing we read is, and the third day. I would suggest to you that it was three days after Nathaniel and Philip had been called. This would give Jesus enough time to travel from where he was over in Bethabara, over where John the Baptist was known to have baptized. He would have given him the time to travel the 23 to 30 miles, and everybody's got a guess on that, uh, to Cana of Galilee for this wedding feast. And so we see that right off the bat. Look at verse number 3. It says, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Guys, this is simply referring to the fact that they had run out of drink. 
And when they do so, Jesus' mother turns to him for help. Now, there's been a couple of suggestions in this regard. Why would Jesus' mother immediately turn to Jesus and say they have no drink? We need you to provide wine. They have nothing to drink, right? Well, one suggestion is that, moms, have you ever swelled up with pride when your child does something good? Anybody? No moms swell up with pride? And have you ever shaken your head in disgust and, yes, you are your father's child, right, when they don't do so well, right? I think one idea is that Mary, when she, she's, when she sees her son come, and now he's got five new friends. It's like, oh, Jesus finally made some friends. No, he's got five new followers that are now following him after the experience over here with John the Baptist. I imagine she probably swells up because guess what? She had, hail, remember? Remember the Christmas story. Hail Mary, thou art highly favored, right? You're going to bear the, the son of God. Maybe she's starting to swell up and maybe her faith gets a little bolstered. Oh, Jesus is really who the angel said he is. That could be one situation. Another idea that I would ask you to think about is also this. The five extra guests had not RSVP'd for this wedding. <laughs> Folks, this is why RSVPs are so important. Maybe the food and the drink ran out because of the extra guests. We have, no, we have really no idea to the exact situation. But the reality is Mary, when she sees him, she says, Hey, they're running out of wine. She says, they have no wine. And so she simply turns to Jesus. Now, when you and I... Let me ask a question. Has anybody in this room ever been in the market for a miracle? Anybody ever needed a miracle in your life? You're not living until you need a miracle, by the way. Listen, if we're in the market for the miracle, you know what we tend to do more? We tend to pray longer. We actually tend to pray. Sometimes we don't even pray. But we tend to pray longer, and sometimes we actually get like Wesley Wilcox. We even get louder when we pray. Right? We start praying loud, right, Wes? When we need a miracle. I would suggest to you that Jesus doesn't necessarily provide miracles based on how loud we get or exactly what we say. Certainly, we're taught to pray in the name of Jesus. But I would suggest that he hears our heart more than he hears our words. And you say, well, what's the point here? Well, I think that we see something here with Jesus' mother. It doesn't depend on what she says to Jesus. She simply turns to her son and says, they've run out of wine. Now, whether she was saying, it's your fault, you brought more guests along with you, or whether she gets swelled up with pride and she has a greater confidence that her son can do something about the need, the point is that she turns to the right person. You and I need to remember that when we are in the market for a miracle, we too must turn for the right one, and his name is Jesus. In verse number 4, notice with me, working very quickly, Jesus saith unto her, he says, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. Now this seems a little bit strange, and to some degree maybe a little bit insensitive. But culturally speaking, at this time, it not only would have been ordinary for Jesus to address his mother this way, it would have been appropriate. 
In fact, not only ordinary and appropriate, uh, some have suggested that when he refers to his mother in this manner, when he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? He was actually showing affection. Now, to you and I, we're like, how dare he talk to his mother that way? You see, because we weren't there. Which is why I caution people all the time about sending important messages through text or Facebook. Because you cannot see someone's expression or hear their heart when they type something. And so Jesus says, woman, what have I to do thee? This literally reminds me of another situation. You remember when Jesus was younger and mom and dad and the whole company of people went to Jerusalem. He was about 12 years old. They go to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, right? And you remember the whole company of people starts leaving Jerusalem and they get a day or so away and then... Mary and Joseph are like, Ale, Ale, uncle free. Jesus, where are you? Jesus. And they're like, he's not here. What do they do? They go back to Jerusalem. And when they go back to Jerusalem, you'll find this story in Luke chapter 2. When they go back to Jerusalem, what do they find? They find their son <laughs> sitting in the temple with all the doctors and all the teachers. And he's listening. He's listening to them. He's, he's not telling them everything yet, but he's listening and asking them questions. And in verse 48 of Luke chapter 2, the Bible says this. His mother says to him, he says, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And in the very next verse, in verse 49, Jesus responds by saying, How is it that you sought me? Now stop and think. What he is saying right here is, why are you looking for me? Why are you looking for me? And because he goes on, he says, you know that I must be about my father's business. He says, why are you concerned with where I'm at? Because you know that my will is to do the will of him that sent me. And so this response here in John chapter 2 simply reminds me of an earlier time. So when Jesus says, mine hour has not come, he's basically reminding his mom. He's like, listen, mom, the Father will determine the exact moment that I am to take action. And He has not determined that. I answer to the Father. I am living my life in a way that brings the Father honor and glory. And so He's literally not being disrespectful. He's just laying out the case for His mom. So look at verse number 5. His mother then says, when she finishes speaking to Jesus, His mother says to the servant, she says, whatever He says, do it. She just looks at the servants, whatever he says, do it. Some suggest, and I talked with some folks that have come out of Catholicism, and they suggest that if you take this passage, that Mary was actually the one pulling the strings. Oh, Mary's the one pulling the strings. Look at her. She's just, she's just weaving her web of, of, of leadership in Jesus' life. She's the one dictating everything he is going to do. Well, folks, if Mary expected Jesus to perform a miracle then why would she ever tell the servants to do what he says? Why would she say, if, if she's expecting someone to do something without human affairs, without human interruption or intervention, why would she say, do what he tells you to do? In fact, in his message entitled, The First Sign, I was referred to it by our teen leaders. I was listening to pastor and teacher Wes Hamilton who stated that verse number 6 of our passage, notice verse 6 with me, verse 6 and 7, notice with me, 
It says, and there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up. Wes Hamilton, he suggests that verse 6 is literally, he says, quote, this is the keystone verse in this whole passage. Verse number 6. He, say, he goes on and he says that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit but inserted by the disciple John. Why is this verse so important? Notice in verse number 6. And there were set six water pots of stone. Now I want you to notice the next phrase. After the manner of purifying the Jews. You may never have considered it this way, and to be honest, I had never considered it this way. But one little detail speaks loudly and clearly as to what Jesus was about to do. When you think about culturally and historically and biblically what these water pots of stone were used for, they would have been setting outside, out front, before you actually entered the feast of the wedding. And these water pots of stone would have been used to pour water over the hands of those that were attending uh, the wedding feast or some type of celebration. And so the picture here is that the Jews who were coming to the wedding feast, they went in only, only after they had rinsed their hands ceremonially with this water. And so what it's a picture of is them washing their hands externally but internally considering themselves righteous and holy and able to enter into the feast. Before they could enter, they had to do the symbolic washing. It was a process all about the show. I would caution each and every one of us that religiosity is all about the show. That's why I tell people many times, I'm not really trying to talk to you about a religion. I'm trying to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, we can have religion about a lot of things. People have religion about if it's going to snow or not. People have religion about football and baseball and basketball and wrestling and on and on. We could name dance class, whatever it is. People get religious about all sorts of things. But when we come to the Lord's house, I want to encourage you to develop and to continue to build your relationship, not a religion. Listen, it was a part of a rule-based system that intended to bring about holiness in people's life. But folks, there's only one who can make you or I holy, and his name is Jesus. When you think about it, for hundreds of years, the Jews had been carrying the burden of the law. They had been carrying the burden of their own salvation, if you please, which is why in Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 28, Jesus said these words. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was like, listen, I, I'm establishing a new way, a new order, and this is what we see in verse number 6 and following, speaking to what they were using it for. In verse number 7, Jesus simply says, hey guys, let's fill up the water pots. Fill up the water pots with water. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a time or in your life or felt like the Lord told you to do something that seemed a little strange? <laughs> like, uh, go talk to that person. You ever had a time where the Lord has said, hey, do this. It seemed a little strange to you. It seemed a little odd or maybe it even seemed a little out of place. 
Can you imagine what these servants were thinking? These were servants at the wedding feast. And Jesus is saying, the mother comes to Jesus and she says, hey, they have no wine. Then she goes to the servants. We don't know that they're in front of one another, but she goes to the servants and says, hey, do what he says. And the first thing Jesus says is, hey, let's go outside and fill the ceremonial water pots with water. I'd imagine the servants are thinking, uh, how is this going to help resolve the problem that we have inside? By the way, wouldn't they have already had something that they could have put more drink or more wine in inside? Why would they go out and fill up these water pots? Listen, the Bible tells us here in verse number 6 that these water pots contain two or three firkins apiece. The reality is two or three firkins would have been between 20 and 30 gallons. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever carried a five-gallon bucket of water? How heavy do you think those 20 to 30-gallon stone water pots were? That's a lot of water. And guess what? When we carry a five-gallon bucket of water in the good old U.S. of A., it's usually made out of plastic. It's usually made out of plastic, which is a lightweight material. Not like a stone water pot that was 20 to 30 gallons. And so they fill up these water pots. 20 to 30 gallons times 6 would have been between 120 and 180 gallons of water at this time. This would have been a heavy ordeal for these servants. But when Jesus tells the servants to fill up the water pots, it's all a part of his plan to do more than just provide for the feast. It was another way for him to display what he came to destroy. And what he came to destroy was the old way of purification. Watch, let me wash the outside so that I seem as though I'm righteous, as though I seem that I'm holy. When Jesus came to offer his life as a ransom for many, what he was doing was coming to shed his own blood. And so we see the rest of the story, it continues. Read verse number 7 again with me. It says, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots, and they filled them up to the brim. In verse number 8, notice what the Bible says, and he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. I don't believe that these guys took those water pots inside. I believe that they sat exactly where they were. And now they're drawing out of the water pots. And these guys are probably thinking, we just put water in the stone pots. And now you want me to bear it out to the governor of the feast? That would have been an insult. As a servant to take water to the governor of the feast, it would have been an insult. And it also would have ensured their own punishment. And yet here in verse number 8, it says, draw out and bear to the governor of the feast. You see, there was no trial run. There's no hesitation. There's no debate. There's no anxiety. Just the creator of the universe with the confidence to tell them to bear out what needed to be borne. Oh yes, his prerogative supplied the power for the water to become wine. And in verse number 9 and 10, the Bible says, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Although it would have been an insult, and although it would have ensured their punishment had the governor of the feast drank the water, 
I don't see any hesitation on the part of the servants. They literally do exactly what Jesus says to do. And they bring it to the governor of the feast. And he takes it, listen, to the, there was no fanfare. There was no formal announcement. There is now new wine for everybody to drink. There was nothing like that. Jesus just says, hey, bear it out and take it to him. And so they take the wine. Someone has said, the means for this miracle seemed to be human, but the result was found to be divine. Through it all, Jesus was previewing a better way, if you please. In fact, not only a better way, but the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. This is what he's previewing through this story. You remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses, he turns the water into blood. When he turned the water into blood in the Old Testament, it was a sign of God's judgment. But here in the New Testament, when Jesus turns the water into wine, it's a symbol of not God's judgment, but a symbol of God's grace and mercy. And it actually is a picture, a foreshadowing, a picture of the blood that he would shed for the sins of the world. Much like the governor of the feast had commended the bridegroom for saving the choice or best wine until the end of the feast, Jesus' miracle indicates to you and I and to those who had eyes to see it that God had saved the very best for last. Now before I wrap up this message, I want to say something about the, watch, watch what I'm about to do, the wine. I want to say something about the wine because it's really important to understand a couple of things historically and biblically. The late theologian, author, and teacher James W. Shepard said this. He said, Jesus made real wine out of water, but there was a great difference between the Palestinian wine of that time and the alcoholic mixtures which today go under the same name of wine. Their simple vintage was taken with at least three parts water and would correspond more or less to our grape juice today. He goes on to say, it would be worse than blasphemy to suppose that just because Jesus made wine that he justifies the drinking usages of our modern society's wine with its bars, strong drinks, and resulting evils. I was reading more and Another person, senior professor of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and world-renowned scholar, Dr. Robert Stein, reported this. He said, at this time in history, rabbis actually debated the mixture between water and wine. He went on to say that sometimes the mixture was as great as 20 parts water to one part fruit of the vine. Drinking unmixed wine, Stein says, was looked upon then as something that was barbaric. Folks, the reason I shared that is I don't believe Jesus was wanting to encourage a gluttonous, drunken party when he turned the water and wine. And if that's all you see in the water to the wine, then that's all you want to see. What Jesus was doing here is something so much more special than just turning water to wine. Here's the thing, in verse number 10, notice verse number 10. It seems that the wedding feast is almost over. And so why is Jesus providing so much wine? The wedding feast is almost over. I already told you that each, for each water pot held between 20 and 30 gallons of fluid, right? 
If you do the math, I said that's between 120 and 180 gallons. If you continue to do math, which I'm not the world's best at, but if you continue to do math, you'll find out that creating that much wine would have created between 1920 and 2880 eight-ounce servings of wine for a small wedding party. You say, well, why did he create so much wine? Well, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about why did he take five plus two and equal 5,000 return 12 baskets. I believe it's a sign and a reminder to you and I that with Jesus, we always get more than we need. And with Jesus, we always get more than we deserve. This is what we see through this miracle. This was not some drunken orgy, some kind of gluttonous thing where Jesus said, hey, let's just throw caution to the wind and have a party, party, party. No. Listen, Romans 5.20 reminds you and me that where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is able to make all grace abound to us. He enables us to really enjoy the abundant life that he talks about in John chapter 10. And our Lord is able, as we know in Ephesians 3.20, He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you and I could ever ask or think. Oh no, this miracle was not about turning water into wine. This miracle was all about the new life that you and I can have through Jesus Christ and His shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Oh listen, the new life that Jesus' miracle illustrates cannot and will not fit into an old container. You get that? The new wine, the new life that Jesus creates in you and I cannot fit into an old system of behavior, right? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you say, but, but pastor, I still look the same. I'll pray for you. So did the stone water pots. The stone water pots that are still sitting out front of the wedding feast, they still looked exactly the same. It wasn't the outside that was being transformed like the Jews were trying to, to wash themselves clean in their system of cleansing, man's traditional system of cleansing. They were washing the outside. Jesus says, no, I'm going to show you the only way, the best way to live from now on. I'm going to reveal that through me, you must be washed on the inside. This is what he's showing through this wonderful miracle. Listen, the water pot still looks the same, but what is on the inside has changed. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's the inside. Isn't that what Paul said? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is, this is all about from the inside out. See, we live in a society that is always trying to do, do, do. If I give to this charity, if I do this charity, if I do this, if I say this, maybe God will love me enough to forgive me. He already loves you enough to forgive you. He wants you to come to the altar, which is a place of recognition and acknowledgement of who we are and simply say, Jesus, I'm screwed up. I need you to forgive me and come into my life. 
That's what the miracle is all about. The water to the wine was a foreshadowing of what he wanted to do in our lives. And in verse number 11, the last verse of the passage that we read, it says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus at Cana of Galilee. And notice the results, manifesting forth his glory. And you know his new friends? You know his new friends? What's it say about his new friends? And his disciples believed in him. Listen, the results were the need of the hour was met. When Jesus turned the water into wine, the miracle revealed more about Jesus' glory. And the greatest miracle of all was that his new followers put their faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm still in need of a miracle. What do I do? I would suggest this. At some point in your life, you will need a miracle from God. You may not ever recognize it. You may not ever say it. But you'll be in need of the Lord's intervention in your life. You'll be in need of that divine intervention that the the definition declares. What I would suggest is that you look at verse 5. Because there's the secret to miracles. Right here in our passage in verse number 5. In verse number 5, Jesus' mother turns to the servants. And what does she say? She says, whatever he says to you, what does she say? And that's what I say to you today. If you're looking for a miracle, I would encourage you to stop looking for a miracle and start following the Savior. Everybody's looking for a miracle. Oh, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Quit calling out for help and just start following Jesus. And along the way, miracles will start to happen. Am I right? Just start following Jesus and miracles are bound to happen. It's happened in our life over and over and over again. I couldn't even begin to explain to you how God has worked in Krista and I's life. I guarantee you without Jesus, we wouldn't be together today. Man, it takes a lot of grace to deal with me. God has given it to her and I thank God for that. I'm being facetious, obviously. But the point is, listen, if we want to see miracles in our life, Let's just follow Jesus. Let's do what Jesus tells us to do. Let's follow his word. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, I hope that you understand that no amount of washing that you do, no amount of serving that you, no amount of saying what you think you believe will save you. The only one that will change you from the inside out is Jesus Christ. And you know what that requires? That requires us to exercise a little bit of faith putting our trust, our faith, and our confidence in something that we can't see, but yet we believe it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? I'll never be able to work my way to heaven. Without Jesus, I'm in trouble. I want to encourage you. Look at the miracles of Jesus as we go through them over the next few weeks with a different mind's eye. Look for the hidden truth, the things that maybe we haven't ever considered because we wanted to look at it according to our own ways and our own thoughts. But we know what the Bible says about that. Our thoughts thoughts and our ways are not his ways. But we have to be careful. The way which seems right unto a man are the ways of death. 
Oh, listen, I encourage you. The miracle of Jesus is here for you today. Trust him while you have the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.